Welcome to the Impact Medicom podcast. In this episode, hosted by Impact Medicom Sarah Desette, we welcome Dr. Howard Lim. Dr. Lim is a medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of gastrointestinal cancers at the BC Cancer Agency in Vancouver and clinical associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. In this episode, we discuss current and emerging systemic treatments for advanced unresectable biliary tract cancers, as well as the barriers to accessing new treatments in Canada. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners. As we discuss treatments in biliary tract cancers, we welcome again Dr. Howard Lim to the podcast. So thank you for joining us, Howie. Thank you for having me. So we are going to get right into it and start off with epidemiology. So what is the incidence of biliary tract cancers in Canada? Biliary cancers are rare, probably affects, if you look at the number, probably less than five out of 100,000. So roughly from the Canadian Cancer Society, there's probably about 500 cases per year across Canada. Biliary tract cancers are kind of lumped in. So there's really three groups. One's the gallbladder, and then you have one that's intrahepatic or within the liver, and then extrahepatic or outside the liver. Prognostically, they're a bit different. And even from a genomics perspective, which we can talk about later, because they are all rare, they are lumped together for clinical trials purposes. And to talk more about the prognosis, uh, what exactly is kind of the median survival for biliary tract cancer? In an incurable setting, so if either A, the disease cannot be resected through surgery or it's spread, the traditionally what we say is if a person undergoes some form of treatment, the median survival is approximately a year. You know, in a curable setting, um, that range does vary depending on what stage the cancer is. Um, so that's a bit more variable in the curable setting in terms of survival. But from a metastatic standpoint, it's about approximately a year. And what factors contribute to poor prognosis kind of in general for biliary tract cancer? Unfortunately, most patients present later on, so present with obstruction. Often the liver or you get jaundiced or the skin goes yellow, and that's backup bilirubin or the byproducts of the red cells in the liver. And so those patients often have more infections, so it's a bit harder to give treatment. The other would be just the extent of the disease. So because this tends to be a more indolent, not a lot of symptoms in terms of when things spread, often that is another poor prognosis sign, it's just the extent of spread. Considering the poor prognosis in, in general for advanced, unresectable BTC and, and the rarity of it, what are the goals of treatment for, for patients beyond survival? So for the most part, what we're trying to do beyond survival is quality of life. So making sure we're giving a treatment that number one is tolerable, but the other part of it is has an impact either by shrinking the disease or reducing the burden of disease to allow a patient to have better quality. So that might be shrinking the tumor bits so that the bile ducts open up so that they're not jaundiced and itchy, or if they have lesions spread to other organs, such as the bone, that we're helping with that pain, so that symptom management part. Outside of survival, the two main things that we really want to help with is making sure that that treatment is tolerable, so we're not making people sick with the treatment. And the other is that the treatment helps people feel better. So what is the standard of care for first-line treatment for unresectable advanced biliary tract cancer? The standard first-line chemotherapy is a combination of two drugs. One drug is called cisplatin, and the other one is gemcitabine, and that's 
pretty much the worldwide standard for uh, biliary tract cancers. There's newer data now to add in immunotherapy, which has been shown to provide a survival benefit as well. So that's going through the regulatory process right now. So then after gemcitabine, cisplatin, what is the second line treatment? That can be variables. We now know within the different subtypes of biliary tract cancers, there are molecular aberrations that lend itself to different targeted treatments. So some second line options may include a targeted agent. So there are these IDH1 inhibitors. Sometimes there are HER2 positive biliary tract cancers, for which you can try HER2 blockade. There's FGFR fusions. There is also BRAF inhibitors. Outside of that, there is still standard chemotherapy with 5-FU-oxaliplatin that can be considered. Or in some patients where they can't tolerate oxaliplatin, some people have used 5-FU alone. There are some places that might consider even arenotecan in certain instances as well. So still some chemotherapy options. And what is the access like to some of those biomarker targeted therapies? There are two issues with the access to the biomarker-driven therapies. One is access to the actual tests. So finding out, does the cancer actually have that biomarker? So not every place can do the sequencing for biliary tract cancers. And part of that's related to the fact that none of those targeted agents are currently funded anywhere in Canada. So if you don't have access to the drug, then some places feel, then why are we testing for it? So for the most part, it's still a bit of a user pay option in terms of if someone wants to pay for it, they can go through a drug access navigator and and look to pay for some of these medications. The only one that's not available in Canada is the IDH1 inhibitors, which are only available in the United States. And I have to admit, that carries a fairly substantial financial toxicity. It's about $30,000 US per month. But otherwise, unfortunately, none of the targeted agents though are funded in Canada. Moving back to what you mentioned for first-line treatment with the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy potentially emerging as a new standard of care, can you discuss the clinical trial which that is based on? So the Topaz trial is looking at our standard chemotherapy of cisplatin gemcitabine, and patients are randomized to receiving an immunotherapy drug called dibrolimab versus a placebo. And the patients who received immunotherapy did have a survival advantage around two months versus not receiving it. Overall, it was a very well-tolerated addition to cisplatin gemcitabine. There are some side effects that we'd expect with immunotherapy that weren't, I think, unexpected given the combination with chemotherapy. But overall, it was well-tolerated. There's a survival benefit and even helped improve the response rate, so shrinkage of the cancer, which actually is a very important thing in biliary tract cancers because these cancers are blocking off the bile ducts. So even if you can cause a bit of a response where the tumor might shrink two or three millimeters, can actually help patients quite significantly because they might not need a stent anymore. That drainage is helpful, less chances of biliary infections. So that response rate really is also quite helpful in the patients with biliary tract cancers, whereas we might not need to worry about that so much in other types of cancers. How would you say these results are meaningful to patients and physicians? It's incredibly meaningful as this is the first time in first-line treatment for biliary tract cancers that we've actually had a positive study. Cisplatin gemcitabine has been the standard for almost 10, 15 years now, and we have not been able to improve on that. And this is the first large-scale phase three randomized study that's shown a survival benefit in first line. 
What are your thoughts on the magnitude of overall survival benefit with Dervalimab in the Topaz-1 trial? If you look at it in sort of a very pure numerical value, two months does not sound like a lot. But I do think you need to take one step back and look at how long do people live in totality? And if it's still only approximately a year, we're now moving that bar beyond a year, which is something we've never been able to do. That two months is valuable to somebody in terms of percentage. You're actually living almost like 20, 20% more now with that two months. And it's also a two months more in terms of, number one, the quality is still there. The drug isn't very toxic. But I also think we're missing the point of it's not just looking at this two-month benefit. There is a subset of the patients that seem to benefit even more. Now, unfortunately, we can't figure out who those patients are. But unfortunately, sometimes we just look at this median survival, which is just one time point of when half the people are still alive, versus really looking at the entire curve. And there's a subset of patients that continue to do much better than expected and are living two to three years, which we never really had before. And I think that's an exciting part is trying to find out who are these patients who are doing better with immunotherapy? Um, what is that molecular subtype? It's a, it's data that's a little different than what we would normally see. And I think it's making sure to the funding organizations, we emphasize it's more the shape of the curve, not necessarily a single data point that should be assessed. What are the barriers to gaining access to new therapies in biliary tract cancer? Number one, testing. So, you know, in the second line, we're discussing how there are targeted options. So testing still remains a bit of an issue about trying to find which uh, cancers have those molecular aberrations. And two is actually access to those targeted drugs. And it's difficult because you're talking about a subset of, of already a very small population. So a lot of the data that's come out to support the use of these targeted agents aren't really randomized phase three studies. They're really small phase two studies. So there's not a comparator arm where a population doesn't get the drug. So from a health economic standpoint, it's very hard for the government to say, what is that value? Because they don't have something to compare to. At the same time, these rare populations are never going to be able to generate that kind of data, or it's going to take years and years. So I think from that perspective, it's to advocate that these small subsets shouldn't fall in the same realm and evaluation as something like breast cancer, or colon cancer. You have thousands of patients and you can generate that power. These should be evaluated as a rare disease or a rare subtype. And we should be more novel on how we assess these patients. So I think, I guess, taking one step back, we've been very good at innovating the science to treatment. I think the next step that probably we as a population need to do is advocate for innovation within our health policy so that we can gain access to these novel small subgroups. Is there anything oncologists can do to help patients gain access to new therapeutic regimens of BTC? Yeah. So the number one thing is always providing feedback to the funding agencies. So the process for drugs to be funded, one is requires health care approval. And then the second step is what we call uh, P-coder, which is the drugs go through a health technology assessment or is this a financially reasonable option for provinces to fund? And that's where patients and physicians can submit testimonials about what the value is of this drug for that population. So certainly, currently, actually, I think as of last week, Dervolumab is now health approved. 
is now going through this funding algorithm process. So there will be a window where patients and physicians can submit their arguments for why this is an important drug for this tumor subtype. You are the senior author on a paper recently published in Current Oncology that discusses the emerging systemic treatments for advanced unresectable biliary tract cancer, and it provides Canadian perspective on the challenges of treatment access. What are the important messages that can be taken away from this paper? We've made some significant advances with respect to the science and the treatment of this disease subtype. Really, three to four years ago, if you talked to any oncologist, it'd be very standard. Here's your cisplatin gemicide being, here's your secondline chemotherapy. And it's always a platinum-based. Now that we understand that there are different subgroups that has opened up these treatment options. So I think, number one, we're making advances. It's, it's, things are looking better. We're understanding that it's not just one disease blob. <laughs> There's different subtypes of intrahepatic, different subtypes of gallbladder, different types of extrahepatic. And intrahepatic versus extrahepatic versus gallbladder is all different. But the other part of it is because you have these small subgroups, we struggle now with respect to the funding mechanism that these are rare, and it's really to point out, these are rare populations and need to be treated in a different manner in terms of how we assess and fund them so that we can get access. Because there are really good treatment options for these patients outside of chemotherapy. So how can we help these patients more? And that's probably the next challenge is more of a regulatory issue too. And what unmet needs remain for the management and treatment of of biliary tract cancers? You know, these patients are still pretty sick. Um, making sure we help with respect to support. They require a lot of therapeutic interventions. So a lot of interactions with our hepatobiliary surgeons, our therapeutic gastroenterologists, making sure that while they're being treated, we're doing proper stent changes, nutritional support. And outside of that, it's probably just a general awareness of the disease. Um, fortunately, this There's a few risk factors here and there, but this can affect anybody of any age. And it's just important to recognize certain probably signs and symptoms to be seen earlier than later. So, you know, especially if you're jaundiced, definitely go see your doctor sooner than later. But making sure that we're educating all physicians on just the signs and symptoms of this disease. That brings us to the end of our discussion. And thank you again, Howie, for joining us today. Thank you very much. 